So welcome to Sibling Squabbles. I am Erin. I'm Kyle. Uh, and this week's episode of Sibling Squabbles will be on gentrification versus new urbanism. Uh, so just as a reminder of how we do this, we pick a topic that we think has good arguments on both sides that we think is kind of complex and could be, you know, hopefully our listeners could learn a little something and we just pick sides randomly. So these may or may not be things that we actually think in life, but we're gonna do our best job to make the best case for our side. So given that, let's go. Okay, so Kyle, let's start with a few definitions. Uh, I said that this episode is gentrification versus new urbanism. I wanna go through a few kind of terms, including both of those to start. So why don't you give us a sense of what we mean when we say those things? So I'll start with new urbanism. Um, so basically, I think new urbanism and gentrification are actually, you know, just two different sides of the same coin, depending on the perspective in which someone has. So kind of the definition of new urbanism is to plan urban districts with the idea of having walkable streets, um, housing and shops in close proximity, and a lot of accessible public places. Okay, um, gentrification has the connotation that those neighborhoods are being created for more affluent, wealthier people to come in and to force out the um, poorer original residents of the area. I think that's the connotation with gentrification. Is there anything you wanna to add to those definitions? Um, no, I think that's fair. And I think you're right. It's basically kind of two perspectives on what is probably the same thing. Um, and I wanna make a, a point here too. I know you wanted to make sure we covered kind of the term of central business district. And I know the reason we wanna cover that is when we talk about these neighborhoods that either new urbanism is happening or gentrification is happening, we tend to mostly mean uh, larger cities. That's basically the only place that it's happening. Uh, global, I mean, this podcast, we're gonna talk a lot about the US and US cities, but it is global. Um, but it tends to be happening in generally what they refer to as the central business district. So why don't you kind of tell us what that means? Well, a central business district could also be known as like the financial district. And I think a lot of times we think of a downtown area, but it isn't necessarily, it, it can be quite often a downtown area, but it's not always. So a central business district, some characteristics of a central business district are going to be a lot of offices, banks, and financial institutions. There tends to be a high density or it tends to be densely populated and there tends to be a lot of high rise buildings. Okay. So sometimes that can be industrial. There's a bunch of different types of central business districts and lots of different cities are built differently where they have maybe multiple central business districts or one central business district. But these, the, the, um, the phenomena we're talking about occurring, new urbanism or gentrification, tend to be happening around central business districts. And I think an important thing to mention as well is central business districts um, and whatever else people might want to refer to them as the downtown, um, or again, there might be more than one, but those areas tend to be where a lot of the white collar jobs are, it's where a lot of offices are. And so, you know, we'll talk about with gentrification and new urbanism, the kind of push for people to, instead of moving out to the suburbs, kind of go the opposite way, move into where they're closer to where they might work um, and therefore kind of want to build up neighborhoods uh, in those centrally located places. Again, whether they're geographically central is beside the point, where the, the jobs are and the other things are um, is, a, is a big push. And so that's part of why we're, we're mentioning that because those are kind of the neighborhoods that we're talking about where this is gonna happen mostly. Okay, so while we're on that, we're talking about central business. Will you go through just kind of a, 
a brief history of how cities, specifically in the U.S., uh, how the demographics of those cities have, have existed and how what's happened to those central business districts. And obviously, we can't hit every single city, and every single city has their own story. But do you want to just kind of quickly go just so people have an idea of the areas we're talking about and a little bit of context for what's happening? Yeah, very very brief. You could obviously write entire history books on this, and people have uh, looked Each them city, up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but um, very briefly, I think it, it's important to understand that in the U.S., there was a, a big movement. Um, I believe the biggest push of this that they kind of call white flight was uh, post-World War II. But there was a movement of people to move out of the cities that they were in and move to these areas that they called suburbs. We sort of started creating suburban sprawl. And part of the benefit of that um, for those people at the time, I don't, not that it's a benefit now, but for those people at the time, part of the idea was for them to sort of build these idyllic white neighborhoods um, and be able to just drive to work and then drive home. And they weren't doing things where they worked and they were able to be separated. And another important thing that happened at that time was something called redlining, which is via government policy, literal law, and also banks, um, minority populations, black people especially, were not allowed to buy houses in certain areas. They were not, they were not given the opportunity to look at homes in the suburbs and in these white neighborhoods that people were building. Uh, they didn't, they weren't able to get home loans. And so one thing that ended up happening was that the central business districts or kind of urban cores um, tended to have a lot more minority population people living there. And the white folks that had control of, of banks and loans were out in the suburbs. And so their houses were becoming worth more and more. And therefore, again, the banks were at least somewhat superficially uh, making the neighborhoods that black folks lived in those houses and properties be worth less and less. And so part of, again, what we're gonna talk about here is the sort of flip of that, which is suburbs are becoming less popular. More and more people, especially in younger generations wanna move back to the urban core. They wanna be closer to where they work. They wanna be in the city where things are happening. And so, suburbs are becoming less popular, they're moving out of that, and then going into these neighborhoods that historically, for reasons outlined, tend to be um, more minority population uh, areas, and also poorer areas that didn't, again, have the same investment and the same um, money, basically. Yeah, I want to just, I would, that's, that's all correct and, and important. I just want to add about how widespread some of the like the racial divides in neighborhoods were. As we get into this, we're gonna talk about race as an issue, but it was government policies that were keeping suburbs white and urban areas more, um, you know, with more minorities. It was um, real estate agents would only show black families, you know, houses in particular areas. Um, homeowners associations would do their best to keep their neighborhoods white. Um, you mentioned banks and financial institutions were doing that and making it much easier for white males in particular. They also they also discriminated against women and, and getting loans and buying houses. Um, so this is a what was a widespread a widespread thing to create to, to create segregated neighborhoods throughout the country. I think we think and for of that quite a while. We should make a point of noting this wasn't like a two-year blip. This yes. was many, many decades of this happening. And even if it had only been for one decade, which it wasn't, it was for many, the impacts of that are still seen because the more that your house is worth and then you can sell it and get a bigger house and you get that accumulated wealth over generations that was really lost to a big portion of people. Yeah. And so 
again, the flip is that is new urbanism. It is younger people with money, specifically younger white people, instead of living in the more spread out, I have to drive suburb, there is a, a movement. I don't know how widespread it is. We'll kind of get into that. But <clears throat> of wanting to be in the more walkable, more urban, more consolidated neighborhoods. Yeah, and it's good that you mentioned the car too, because that's a big thing. Part of it is an environmental concern and people in this group don't want to have cars. They don't want to drive for 30 minutes on a highway to get to work. Um, they don't want to drive at all in a lot of cases. So that's a real push that's happening. And the whole kind of conversation that I think this is a good transition for us to get into the different arguments and the different sides here is how is it happening? Is it okay that it's happening? Should we be encouraging it or discouraging you know, this, this move? Whether you wanna call it gentrification or new urbanism is kind of gonna depend on which side of the fence you land on. Um, but that's gonna be what, what we're getting into. So for this, I will be arguing the anti-gentrification argument. I'm gonna be, the, I'm gonna say I'm pro new urbanism. I think that uh, <laughs> the way we phrase some of these words is gonna be important. I think semantics might come in a little bit. We wanna to try to avoid a semantic argument, but I think this one, uh, since I'm gonna to try to make my point, I'll try to use the more positive words that, that help my side. So I'm gonna say I'm, I'm pro new urbanism. Right, and I'm gonna go ahead and just continue to say that I'm anti-gentrification because that has a negative connotation that I need you to be thinking about when I make my case. So, um, okay, so let's start, we did the history bit. Let's go ahead and start on some of the race and uh, economic issues um, that we wanna talk about in terms of what happens here. Because one of the first things I wanna make sure we touch on is there's a lot of assumptions about what it means when we say gentrification, when these groups of people move into the central business district or the urban areas, what's happening? I think you know the implication is that people are being displaced that communities have to leave, um, that they're kind of increasing uh, rents and costs of things and that that forces people out. And so I think the first bit that we need to cover is, is, is that happening? How is it happening? Where is it happening? Okay, so one part of the narrative with gentrification is going to be largely driven by the biggest cities in the country. It's happening in large cities. We are not, this isn't happening in you know, smaller towns or even smaller cities as much. It, it, there is some of that phenomenon in smaller cities, but to this point, especially with the studies that have been done, which have been going, there are studies that basically, especially over the last 15 or 20 years that have been, went back to the late 60s all the way up through the 2000s. We're talking about the biggest cities in the country and the, uh, about half of the gentrification that is, that is occurring or half of the new urbanism that's occurring has happened in New York, Chicago, and DC. So it's happening most largely in those three cities. Okay, so if, if you think about gentrification possibly existing in, I don't know, 50 cities across the country, keep in mind how much larger the scale is it's happening in those three, New York, Chicago, and DC. And, and it is happening elsewhere. I mean, I think, you know, Boston, LA, Denver, you know, some of the cities, Dallas, some of the cities in the South, it's happening to some degree, but much, much less than, like you said, the main, big, large metropolitan cities that we think of. And that's the case globally as well when we talk about other examples of this happening. All right, so why don't you uh, make your argument against gentrification so I can tell you then why you're wrong and why I'm right. 
well, I'm going to start with the issue of wealth accumulation and, and rent prices is going to be right. Go first, because I think what you're going to tell me is that displacement is happening less than we think. Uh, and, and, and fair, I'm going to preemptively say you're right. I think everyone assumes that it is, you know, a 100% displacement rates when a neighborhood gentrifies, and obviously that's not happening. Thank however, you. however, <laughs> I do think it's important to have a conversation around homeownership versus renting because one of the studies that I have linked to here talks about where people are actually displaced and they talk about a couple example cities. So there is, for example, a few neighborhoods in LA where actually a pretty small percentage of the original uh, residents of the neighborhood ended up getting displaced. And that's the same thing and they use DC as an example. There's a neighborhood in DC where that's the case where it's, you know, it was a much smaller number than actually most people think. I think it was 30%, which is pretty small given people move in and out of DC neighborhoods anyway. Um, and so those displacement numbers are, are really small. What I'm gonna argue is that the distinction here is gonna be about home ownership versus renting. Because when you see prices go up, and I am making whatever wage I'm making and paying rent, which is the case in most big neighborhoods in most of these big cities we're talking about, and the rent goes up X percentage, I am absolutely gonna leave. I'm gonna have to go somewhere else. And when we're talking about New York, DC, Chicago, I have to go somewhere that probably makes my commute twice as long because there's not a whole lot of room, there's not a whole lot of other places to go. And so I'm seeing now, you know, leaving the place that I was renting, having to go somewhere else where I may or may not be able to find something of the same price. And also now my commute and therefore my time being spent is a lot longer. Now, if I owned a home, then this would be a different story. So again, the, the article that I was talking about, the study that gave that example of the DC neighborhood with low displacement actually saw that that neighborhood had something like 80% um, home ownership of the black residents that were there before. So when your house triples in price and you own the house, this is a great economic advantage to you. But when you're renting and your rent triples in price, you have to leave, you have to. You can't afford that given how wages generally do not go up. And so I think it's important to make that distinction because again, especially in big cities, but in general, we see that Hispanic population, black population, minority populations have a much lower home ownership rate than white folks do in the US. And so they're not going to see as many of those advantages. Um, they're more likely to be renting. They're more likely to be displaced from their rent increasing. Okay, so I'm going to make a few points. One, you started by saying that there wasn't widespread displacement, but then your argument circled back to the fact that renters are going to have to be displaced. The fact is that's not happening. So let me give you uh, some stuff from a study, okay? So Jacob Bigger did a study. It came out in 2002. And it, this was specifically Boston, but you're gonna, if you're going to look at studies, you're going to see this over and over and over. So between 1974 and 1997, a period in Boston where people said there was extreme gentrification. Victor found no evidence that poor people moved out of gentrifying neighborhoods at a higher than normal rate. So we're talking about how much people are moving in gentrified neighborhoods compared to other neighborhoods. In fact, the gentrified neighborhoods, and I'm putting gentrified in quotes here, in the, in the new urban neighborhoods, people were moving out, in fact, they were moving out lower, okay? And since we're talking about what happens with those people, as the, the certainly with new urbanism coming in, things do become more expensive. So what we're talking about is taking areas that are perhaps struggling economically and building and investing in those areas. Okay, and we'll talk 
when we get to the economic points, we'll talk about what that means and where I think that's good and bad. But um, the New York City Housing Authority and NYU's Forum Center compared three different types of neighborhoods, okay? So persistently low-income neighborhoods, persistently high-income neighborhoods, and then the areas that you might call gentrifying, okay? So the, what I would call the new urbanism areas, all right? In those neighborhoods, what you are seeing from residents that are in the gentrified areas, their income is going, is going up by about $3,000 a year. Their education levels are going up. Their tests, they're, they're going to schools that have higher test scores. And those children from that, again, were in the neighborhood before and stayed in the neighborhood were, um, were scoring higher. So in some ways, the gentrification is helping with some of those things. It's creating a situation where you're putting some of the people that were more low income in situations where they're now making more money because there's more and better jobs available in those areas. And in, and in the long term, the education is better for perhaps the children, those children that are in those areas to then have better incomes and better lives. So, yeah, so I think maybe I wasn't clear in my first point because um, I'm going to, I agree with what you're talking about in terms of the people that stay in those neighborhoods and the benefits they get. Where I'm going to disagree with you on, though, is the amount that it's happening because, and again, maybe I wasn't clear, but I think there is a very big distinction in specific neighborhoods where it's happening and where it isn't happening. If you are looking at a neighborhood with higher homeownership or where there's more people that are able to stay and not get displaced, then yes, you see the advantages you're talking about. But I'm going to go ahead and pull up a study here from um, my source, which is the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. And they did a research um, a bit more recently than yours, although still generally same time frame. I think it was 2010, 2013-ish. Um, and they looked at, again, similar cities, because there's only so many cities where this is actually happening. So we're looking at DC, New York, Philly, San Francisco, the main big cities. Um, and they actually are seeing, you know, the, av the averages of displacement for different minority populations in these cities over that period of time that they gentrified is generally might look okay but in as an overall number but that's because there are those pockets of neighborhoods where it's happening with again high home ownership or whatever is going on that see these advantages and then other neighborhoods that don't have that that are looking at primarily renters that see massive displacement i mean i again we have i'm not going to go through too many numbers here we have all of our sources linked if anyone wants to read up on this because there is some disagreement in the studies. But in neighborhoods that don't have as much home ownership that do have higher percentage of renters, especially in the minority populations, they don't get the advantages you're talking about because they don't get to stay there. And it's important to think about those communities that are forced out. I mean, yes, the people that stay get a better school, but you know, the ones that were forced to leave have not just an equal foot at that point somewhere else, it's worse for them. Okay. so. Again, I think there's a misconception here sometimes. I think we think of gentrification as um, a bunch of white people coming into a neighborhood that was, you know, all African-Americans or largely African-Americans and kicking them all out and making, a, making themselves a, a, a white haven in their, in their you know, urban space. And, and the, you know, the, the previous neighborhood, you know, the previous residents of the neighborhood have been pushed out and, and have to live in even more squalor. That's not really what's going on. And what's happening is I think the areas where places are being gentrified, there are more home ownership. So I think we're blaming gentrification when maybe we should be blaming, um, 
you know, some of the situations in the neighborhoods and say, let's find ways to create more home ownership in those areas. And then if we come and create new urbanism to help out once they start owning their homes, we can start eradicating some of the poverty that's going on. I just, I want to do another thing just to say, um, another study that I was looking at where um, areas that are 40% black or more are either not having gentrification or the gentrification and new urbanism is going significantly slower than areas with less than 40% of African-Americans in those areas. So it's not, it, those areas, the ones we talked about where we're saying increasing income or the gentrifying areas are having those positive outcomes. Maybe what we need to do is create the situation in some of the other areas that the poorer areas or persistently low income areas as I'm, as I'm looking at in the study and create a situation where then gentrification can come in and boost up the economy even more. Well, and this is an important point too, because you're right. The way in which these things happen depend a lot on what government policies are or were in place at the time of gentrification. And so I'm gonna make the anti-government argument here, which is I would love a world in which we could say, here are X, Y, Z policies that we want you to do. We want, and, and again, there are some kind of uh, examples of the types of things you could do. You could do a homestead exemption that I know exists. You could, um, you know, kind of require certain amounts of affordable housing. You could um, have programs for people already living and working in the area. But my, my argument here and my problem that I think is going to be a pretty easy sell, I hope, is that I don't have a whole lot of trust in a lot of governments to make those things happen. There was a, you know, we talked historically about redlining and you mentioned uh, specifically realtors and real estate agents. And we talk about that because it was legal during the period of time that we mentioned that built up the divide that we see now, but that's still happening. I mean, within the past two years, there was a, uh, an undercover investigation of realtors in New York City, uh, specifically out in parts of Long Island, showing houses to people and they were lying, basically directly lying to black people looking to purchase homes that something wasn't available or they had an offer on it already. They weren't showing them the houses and the neighborhoods they wanted to go to. And they were showing them to what they thought were potential white homeowners. And so, yeah, I think it'd be great if we lived in a world where we could do all these protections and where I trusted the, the local governments to put all these things in place and have all these safeguards for people before we gentrified and let them get the economic advantages. But I'm not, I mean, we just saw with Wells Fargo, banks are literally still giving higher interest rates to black people trying to buy homes. We're not anywhere near my trust in these organizations and, and authorities to do what I think they would need to do for me to feel comfortable with what you're saying. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think the answer is then we just allow the neighborhoods that are in poverty to continue to be in poverty. I mean, I think there's a couple of things you can do. I mean, the study that I was looking, I was just quoting from was talking about putting public housing in some of those areas. So if we take an area that is, let's say it's already gentrified or there's already that, it's created that new urbanism and we put some sort of, uh, you know, uh, public housing that's there where you've got some government assistance, that's going to allow those residents that are lower income to be in an area where they don't have to have a car to, to get to work and get to the stuff they need to get to. They're living in an area with public space, living in an area with, with a lot of jobs and good schools. And that helps them. I think there's also things like, just as an example from Jacksonville, um, what Jacksonville was doing is they were offering down payment assistance in certain areas, like, like Springfield is an area in Jacksonville that is kind of kind of gentrifying. They were offering it, um, down payment assistance for buying a house, but 
you have to live in that house for five years. So what they're trying to avoid is if you're talking about not allowing for government assistance and we just let everybody do whatever they want, then you're going to have people that are going to come in to those areas that are gentrifying, buy houses cheap, flip them and sell them for more money. And that that is going to create displacement if we allow that to happen. If we create some government assistance policies and try to keep those people in the neighborhood and just help them, you know, help them grow with the neighborhood, that's what's going to be successful in taking you know, poorer neighborhoods and making them more affluent. So I, I do want to touch on this point that you're making too about what I'm sort of referring to as reverse gentrification, but we can say it's a part of gentrification, which is taking um, already affluent or already gentrified neighborhoods and saying, okay, we're going to put in uh, government housing, we're going to put in subsidized housing and affordable housing in these areas to get some of the benefits you're talking about. I think that it's also important. Uh, I don't usually find myself advocating too much for this group, but I do think that there is a, a pretty big middle ground here that we have to consider as well in terms of people in the middle class, in particular, the lower middle class. And so when we talk about affordable housing and uh, government subsidized housing, we're talking about generally people very, very low on the economic totem pole that can qualify for, for that type of housing. And so, of course, there's a benefit to uh, people in that income bracket being in the quote unquote more affluent neighborhoods. And I think there's certainly an argument that the people in those neighborhoods that are already affluent can feel a little bit better about, you know, helping whoever gets to be in their school and then they feel better about spending how much more they spend on their their public or private schools in that neighborhood, which we covered last episode. But I think there's a whole there's a whole host of people in the middle, most people in the middle that are not going to qualify. They're not so low down on the economic, you know, um, pull that they're going to qualify for literal Section 8 subsidized housing, but they still can't live in Chelsea in Manhattan. They can't live in, you know, the nicest neighborhoods in DC. And so when we talk about displacing people, I know we mentioned the the racial issue, obviously, of who gets displaced, it's not just, like you said, the people in the absolute, you know, poorest, most impoverished neighborhoods that get displaced. Some of who we're displacing is people that would otherwise maybe not have needed anything, just middle class, lower middle class families and, and, and people, especially in these bigger cities in New York, D.C., where there's a lot of neighborhoods that fall into that category. But, we, but can't we find, isn't it an easier path to, to get them to home ownership than the, the... Like if we're talking about down payment assistance, isn't it? Can't, if we're if we're giving them down payment assistance, can't we get them closer to home ownership that way, as opposed to just public housing? I mean, I'm, public housing isn't the only option. That's true. That's true. I think I, I think since we're talking about this too, I want to move us to a little bit to our second point, which is going to tie in really well, which is there are different types of economic investment. We've talked a lot about homes, which is the main thing that I think people think about with gentrification, where people live and who gets to live there. Um, there's also a business issue. A lot of times what happens with gentrification, even if you see places where residents don't necessarily get displaced, a lot of small businesses do. More small businesses rent spaces than they do own the buildings that they're renting in. That's just the case. And it is more difficult and takes more of a down payment and more initial capital to buy a commercial building for you to do business out of than it does for someone buying a house, especially in these bigger cities. And so I think we have to talk too about whether you want to call it new urbanism or gentrification, when this additional investment comes into these neighborhoods, who's really getting them? What type of local shops and restaurants and businesses 
get displaced as well, even if the residents don't, what are you losing in terms of the, the business and the culture there? Um, because that's not as easy as a fix of just down payment assistance for a small business owner. Commercial real estate is significantly more expensive, especially in, again, these big cities where this is happening. That's not necessarily a viable answer for them. Okay, so I think sometimes I'm going to be a little less scientific here with this argument, but I think what you see a lot of times is central business districts that have been run down and, and a lot of the small businesses have already left and they've gone to the suburbs. There is a, there is a business white flight just along with the residential white flight where a lot of businesses leave central business districts and went to the suburbs. I think sometimes with new urbanism, you're seeing the same things, but you're seeing a lot of those businesses come back. I think that, you know, we might see, uh, you know, as opposed to a bunch of fast food restaurants, we might see a, a, a local coffee shop or a brewery or, you know, uh, a sandwich shop pop up. I think you're seeing that as much as you're seeing larger businesses come in and kick out smaller businesses. I think one of the aspects we would think of with gentrification, uh, the joke I always see with gentrification is, is breweries and coffee shops. Those tend to be locally owned. I mean, we're not seeing Budweiser come in and open up a a brewery in these neighborhoods we're not you know we're not there's i mean there might be a starbucks but i see more in those neighborhoods i'm seeing more local locally owned coffee shops you know yeah and i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and also yeah i'm gonna go ahead and also not be super scientific with my response um and be a little bit more anecdotal because i think we sort of have to be at this point but i think that this is where i'm gonna make a big distinction here on where i am actually anti-gentrification because I think you're right, there are neighborhoods and cities where uh, things were run down. I, it would be silly for me to argue here that I'm anti-gentrification in downtown Detroit. Downtown Detroit needs whatever it can get, however you wanna call it. It's not that poor people are gonna get pushed out. It's that it's already empty. There's already not enough businesses there, not enough people there. The buildings are there, the property's there. Let's make that a place that people wanna be. It would be, again, it would be silly to argue against that. What I'm more referring to is that if we look at some of the big cities where gentrification is happening, not because no one was there before, but just because those cities are expensive. So an example I'm thinking of, there are a couple neighborhoods in Queens, New York, Sunnyside and Astoria that are uh, historically immigrant neighborhoods with a big Greek population, a big Romanian population, uh, Bulgarian population. These are Eastern European immigrant neighborhoods that have been that way for a long time at some point. And, they, and they're, not, they're not especially violent. They're chock full of local neighborhood mom and pop stores and restaurants but at some point what happened in new york which i think is the case in a lot of big cities is someone figured out that that subway ride from queens into manhattan is actually pretty short and when you're in a city like that that compact that's running out of real estate for people and everything's getting more expensive because it always is those neighborhoods being taken over i think are a lot of what people picture for gentrification and it is happening and that's a situation where i don't know that the residents there are getting any kind of benefit you're just closing down the, you know, the local Greek restaurants or shops that have been there, there wasn't anything wrong in the first place. They just, you know, they're closer to the city and people want it. They did the same thing with the South Bronx. They did the same thing with Brooklyn. Like these are the examples I think that also a lot of people think of that I have a problem with. So despite, despite what you would want and New York was gonna run the whole world and everything had to be just like New York, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna take that, <laughs> that from the big bully in New York City for so long. While some of those examples may not have worked in New York, I think that, that new urbanism can work throughout the country, that maybe we should not just take the example of New York and use it in some cities like Detroit, use it in some cities like uh, Miami, and where we can attempt to create 
you know, more urban spaces with more with diverse populations with better jobs and better schools and not and not displace the, the residents. And again, we've seen that even in the worst cases you're talking about, there isn't as much displacement as we think. There's just not every study we've looked at has shown that there's not nearly we all think about this terrible displacement. And that's not really what's happening. So while there might be a few situations where some of those some of those places in New York City have lost some of their culture. I think we can go down to, to Miami and, and still have, you know, some of these really, really affluent, interesting cultures and, and just create economic opportunities in those areas with some of the, with some government programs and with some new, new urban style of living. But I think that it's important to talk about what we could do versus what is in fact happening, because you're right. Everything is not New York, and I'm not going to make an argument against a lot of the smaller cities in the U.S. that I think you're right could could use some new urbanism or gentrification. Regardless, I think there's plenty of places where we could successfully do that, where there is the space. And the, and the density but, compactness of New York is important to mention. For sure, but what we've also seen in again every study is that while that the cities you're talking about happening, it might be nice. That is not where it's happening. It is happening in New York, D.C., London. And again, and we can step outside of New York. I will go to my next favorite city, which is London. The neighborhoods that are getting gentrified in London were not the quote unquote unsafe drug riddled dens that we thought of. They were immigrant communities. It was Brixton. It was, you know, they were places that some things, obviously the economic um, environment was going to be lower. They didn't have as much wealth. And there were examples of some places with a little bit more violence. But there are a lot of immigrant communities in these neighborhoods that had a lot of local businesses that are what we're talking about. And so we would love for New York not to be the example, but it sort of is. What's happening right now with gentrification is these big cities. It will look but different again, if it moves to some of the smaller cities that you're referencing. But again, even in those, but you're right, it is happening in those large cities, but even in those cities, there is not the displacement that I think that you're trying to have our listeners believe that there's this tons and tons of displacement. I did there, there's just no. There's I think not. there's two different kinds of displacement, though. I think there's displacement of residents and people that live there and displacement of businesses. And everything you're referencing is talking about the residents not being as much as you think. The studies on businesses are significantly fewer and far between to find in terms of which local shops are actually leaving, partially because a lot of those are less likely to be owned buildings and more likely to be shops that were, you know, rented. Well, I can tell you that the goal of new urbanism is not necessarily to, you're not going to see Walmarts in these urban areas. I mean, very rarely, right? We're, we're not, you know, now some of the grocery stores- we Probably not, about. but you're gonna see a Whole Foods and you're gonna see a Starbucks and you're gonna see, you know, there are some examples of those chains that are gonna pop up and get rid of the local Greek grocery that was there. Perhaps. Um, um, speaking of, I know we've sort of already covered it, but I do wanna make an extra point of the kind of non-quantifiable argument here, which is, the sense of community that I think can get lost as well with gentrification. And I think that one of the things that happens is, and again, this is less quantifiable than the other arguments we've been making, but I think that one of the things that happens is a lot of younger, um, predominantly white, but you're right, many ethnicities, but a lot of younger people that make more money move into the big cities, partially because it's where jobs are, partially because it's where they wanna be. And what they find themselves missing is the sense of community that they either imagined those neighborhoods to have, or maybe they had back in their hometown that they left. And a lot of the reason that some of the places I'm talking about 
become gentrified is partially because they're cheaper initially, but also because there is a sense of community a lot of times in those places that people want. And there's a risk with gentrification of those people moving in and therefore kind of ruining the community that was the reason they wanted to be there in the first place. And that's not as quantifiable as homeownership and business percentages and things like that. It's more of a sense of how long has everyone been there? How well do they know everyone? How friendly are you with your neighbors? But again, when I'm talking about the places I'm going to argue for, which is more of the immigrant neighborhoods, that can really, really get lost quicker than we think. All right. So I'm, I'm certainly not going to argue that it's a good idea to go in and destroy communities existing, right? I, I certainly am not making that point. I'll say, right, I'll make so I'll, I'll, one for me. <laughs> that's good. It's like 10 to 1 so far. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll make a couple of points here, okay? One, I think that there have been, I can't certainly say this across the board, but I think in some of these new urban ideas and areas, there has been an attempt to unearth some of the positive histories of those areas. Again, I'll look at Springfield in Jacksonville, and there is a, there is a, you know, there's murals and paintings where they're talking about old Springfield and there and the businesses that are cropping up there are constantly paying homage to some of the history of the area. I think the history of the area is, um, you know, are I think the histories of those areas are things like, hist like historical buildings being marked. I don't think those things are being forgotten and thrown away. They're certainly not on purpose. And then also I think, you know, if, if some of my, if the neighborhood changes a little bit, I think some of that's natural in every neighborhood. If some of my neighborhood changes and it comes with the job I have being closer to my house and paying more and the school my kids go to being a better school, then fine, I lose some community. I mean, I, 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 I'm not suggesting that should be a goal, but at some point we have to talk about what's best moving forward for the residents that are in those neighborhoods. I think that I'm gonna make a point to make a distinction here between uh, a new hippie restaurant that's Greek inspired versus the family run generations uh, restaurant that already lived in that neighborhood, right? So it's lovely that you're gonna pay homage to that group or recognize the history. It's not the same thing as the history that was naturally built and is there. That's a really important point. But I do think you're right. I think there's a trade-off. There are some four certain places that there are some safety improvements some school improvements. Again, if you did own property, that there's a benefit there. I mean, I think the general, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the general consensus we're coming to is, which is certainly a little different than I thought we were gonna to come to when we started this episode, which is that it is the, the again, gentrification, new urbanism, whatever you wanna call the movement, that it can be done okay. It's not quite as bad as we thought, but that there's a whole lot of safeguards that I think we can agree need to be put in place in the bigger cities where it's happening in order for it to be done okay. Because I, neither of us came to the conclusion that one side was 100% this or 100% that. A lot of this research says that a lot of things that we thought were very different than what is actually the case. But I do think that we can agree that you can't just say, okay, it's totally fine. That neighborhood was poor, go do what you want with it. If it's going to work at all, um, a lot of, of regulation needs to be put in place. A lot of things need to be done to protect the residents and the community in the sense of who was there before. I think we can agree on that now. Yeah, I think this debate went, when we came up with it, I think we were a little bit concerned that we weren't gonna be able to create two sides. And as we did more and more research, we were actually, you know, we found the facts to be different than what we thought and the yeah. perception. 
And so I, I'm, I think I'm glad that we did this. And I think this is, you know, I think we, I think we hit the main points and the main sides. And I think, I, I do think that anytime you do anything, you can't just say, all right, well, you know, let's, let's not put any caveats or, you know, any safeguards in. You're right. We have to go in with, with plans and be aware of the shortfalls of some of the, you know, some of the policies that have existed in, in especially when you're talking about people's neighborhoods and people's lives. Agreed. So as usual, uh, this one's a little tougher because we came to a consensus, but I'll let the viewers decide who won. I think even if uh, we came to a middle ground, I did a much better job making the points. I think we can say that, so. I definitely won. She even put, she even gave the score earlier where she said one point for her and I'd already had like 12. So I definitely win. So. I mean, we'll just, we'll let the audience decide as usual. I have faith uh, in our, our viewers. So our listeners, our listeners. Um, but yeah, thanks. Thanks for chatting. And I'm excited for what we come up with for next episode.